0: Norse mythology is filled with intrigue and drama in one of the most unusual creation stories you'll ever hear.
1: First, there was ice and fire. But then sparks from the fire hit the ice, and from the melting ice, two creatures were born, a giant and there was a
0: cow. Coming up, friends from Sweden and Norway fill us in on the mythology their societies were founded on. Our favorite Greek guide explains what the Acropolis in Athens has represented through the ages.
2: And it stands for not just ancient times, but Christian times and Ottoman times and everything you can think of because everyone has been up there. So for us, it's just a landmark of what we are.
0: And Holly Morris encounters heroic women who are making a difference in the world's hot spots.
3: They take the energy of fear and kind of flip it on its head and change their lives and change the worlds around them.
0: Find legendary adventure in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Get ready to meet some deities and divas in the hour ahead. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Friends from Scandinavia will explain how a complex world of gnomes, trolls, giants, and gods shaped their Norse ancestors' view of the world more than a 1,000 years ago. And we'll find out why 25 centuries after the Acropolis was built, it remains an important symbol that Greeks take special pride in today. First, let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves by checking in with Holly Morris. She's a filmmaker and writer who travels the world to document the lives of unsung visionaries. You can see her hosting on Globe Trekker, and her documentary series, Adventure Divas, shows up on the local PBS schedule from time to time. In it, Holly introduces us to a collection of women known for stirring things up in places like Cuba, India, New Zealand, and Iran. Adventure Divas comes with a book and a website as well. Holly, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Holly, I think it's great you're highlighting the achievements of some remarkable women around the world in your work. What was it like for you to take a film crew to Iran? When I did that, we couldn't help but notice what seems like an ongoing game many women have to play there as they as they try to outwit what Iran's strict religious authorities require of them in public.
3: Well, I love to make projects that kind of Disabuse some of the ideas in mainstream media, right you know you think about iran you have you have veils, you have oppression, you know you mm-hmm. nuclear talks, all these things you you hear about but really, as you know, Rick, from having been there, you go oh, behind closed doors in Iran and there's a whole other world going on, and women are making films and political activists and trying to change their political system from inside and outside and so it's exciting to me to make the the narrators of the story about whatever country I'm in, the women. The film I made there was called Behind Closed Chadors. (laughs) Ah, good. Perfect. So, you know, trying to getting at that idea that it's not really what you see on the surface. What's Uh, an
0: example of a woman who's uh, doing something creative and something uh, courageous?
3: Well, one Mm. of the women I met with was named Mokaramé Gambari and she has since passed away, actually. She was a painter in rural Iran, in the Caspian region. And she was, you're not supposed to do figurative artwork there, and an old peasant woman in, in the provinces certainly is not. And she was getting into a lot of trouble from the that's a religious authorities. issue, right? That is a religious issue. So you don't want but she started place. painting, hmm. and she was painting all over the walls of her village and all over the walls of the interior of her house, and she's since had shows around the world. So that kind of defiance is not uncommon in Iran and, of course, in many countries around the world.
0: And you, as a journalist, can shine a light on that, so we don't have this clichetic image of women walking around in gunny sacks on the streets. Exactly. You went to India with your crew. What did you learn there?
3: Well, <laughs> God, that's a big question. Because <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, women have a particularly um, complicated slot in that complicated Exactly. Society. I mean, it's, it's, a billion it's people. There's
3: there's gender, caste, all kinds of complicated issues there. How is it
0: changing, though? Because we hear these horrific stories of uh, widows that have to go and be almost like a slave to the husband's family. Or...
3: That's certainly a reality, and we've all, we've heard those stories, but that's not the only story happening in India. I mean, for example, Kiran Bedi is one of the people we featured in our India program called Holy Cow. She was the first female cop in India and went on to become a police chief. And she is in a role model for millions of girls in India and everybody knows who she is and she you know takes no crap women like her and Elabot is another woman we featured in the program she started the self-employed women's association the biggest one of the biggest unions in India so her work with caste oppression and in organizing women and and one wonderful thing i remember about my time with her is she started the women's bank where women could get loans And they used their bangles and other things for collateral. And they were the only signers on the account. One of the main rules of this bank was that their husbands could not be signers on the account and could not withdraw money. So it was a micro-lending story, which we've heard some about, but, you know, a real political uh, machine.
0: If you think about the state of women in the 1950s in America and the inspiration of Eleanor Roosevelt, probably similar today in a lot of ways where particular women can stand up and inspire The next generation to demand a little more,
3: absolutely, and having the confidence and the tools to change their lives is something that across the board in many of these places is is what it's about. It's not just sort of soft inspiration; it's tools.
0: Tools. It's hard, practical. Yeah, yeah. You got to have a bank account. (laughs) (laughs) Travel filmmaker Holly Morris is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. Polly specializes in depicting the stories of women who are unafraid to be nonconformists, even political rabble-rousers, as they try to make the world a better place. Her book, website, and PBS documentary series are called Adventure Divas. Her latest film is The Babushkas of Chernobyl. It's about a group of elderly women living defiantly in one of the world's most notorious radioactive zones. Now, Holly, you go to a lot of edgy places. Uh, You also took your crew to New Zealand, which seems kind of tame. What did you learn in New Zealand?
3: Hmm. Well, New Zealand, the kind of political context of that program at the time that we made it was that women ran New Zealand. At the time, the prime minister, the mayor of all the major cities, uh, everybody was a woman. And I was like, what kind of socio-political stars have aligned to make this reality happen? Now, of course, that's all changed. (laughs) Because they gave sheep the vote. They gave sheep the boat. Right. More sheep than people there. But women aren't necessarily running ahead of all the political offices in New Zealand anymore. But there is a kind of overwhelming DIY sensibility about New Zealand. You know, you, you, you've got to build your um, fences and, you know, take down your sheep and make your tea cakes and everything else. So there is a kind of um, there is a strange gender equity born from necessity.
0: You went to Cuba. What was that like?
3: Well, Cuba, one of the interviews I did there was a woman named Asada Shakur, who is actually a Black Panther who's been in hiding there for a long time. And part of the political situation between the U.S. and Cuba has been dependent on her extradition that's been part of the talks. I don't know where she is now. I'm pretty sure the interview I did with her was the last one she ever did on camera. Things got kind of heated up after that. So it's hard to talk about Cuba and not talk about politics, at least historically. Um, but one another woman we featured there was Gloria Rolando, who's a filmmaker, who did films about the Yoruba religion there.
0: Is it particularly repressive for women? Because my experience with a lot of socialist governments is... They are supportive of women's issues.
3: Yeah, I mean, they have an incredible literacy rate among women and yeah. and the poor in Cuba and a good medical system. A lot of things to be proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in terms of artistic and political expression, there's obviously been a lot of oppression. But, you know, there's machismo, right? You know, Lisette Vila, who is one of the women we featured in the film, was like, Machismo, Leninismo, you know, it was, you know, so yes, there's the government and then there's There's machismo. So these things both affect women. There's sort of the demographic (laughs) or the
0: the attitudinal reality of the culture. Mm -hmm. I know Ortega had that problem also Mm -hmm. in uh, in Nicaragua Mm -hmm. because they were quite macho. Mm -hmm. At the same time, women were very empowered Mm -hmm. with the whole Sandinista thing. And finally, I'd like to go with you to Ukraine because your newest project is the Babushkas of Chernobyl. As you were, um, I guess, hosting a Globe Trekker episode in Ukraine, you learned there was a community of women who were living in the exclusion zone where you're not supposed to go because of the radioactivity caused by the nuclear disaster there in 1986. Mm-hmm. And you found a community of uh, 100 or so women that actually defied the authorities and are living there and doing remarkably well. What did you learn?
3: Well, they have been there for uh, nearly 30 years. What I learned was... You know, radiation, as, as um, horrible and as it is, and the, it has caused many deaths, but there are other factors at play. And for the women of the zone, being close to their motherland, living self-determined lives, being happy, which is, as we all know, correlates to health, all these things play a factor in their survival.
0: What is the exclusion zone, and who did you find living there, and, and how were they living?
3: The exclusion zone in Ukraine is a roughly a 100-square-mile area, Very sparsely populated. Villages may have two or three people and may have 10 or 12 people and not a lot of people left in the zone. 1,200 people returned after the accident in 86. There's about roughly 100 left. So it is a remote area, isolated Full of wild animals, wild boar, wild horses, crazy stuff. Because the reality is that the absence of humans has been a boon to the animal population more than the detriment of radiation. And
0: within that relatively thriving little animal world, there are 100 grannies, most of them in their 80s. The men have all died or were not there anymore. But these babushkas, the Russian word for grandmother, right?
3: Right. And they are a resilient bunch, as you can imagine. They lived through Stalin. They lived through Hitler. They lived through the Chernobyl accident. And it has to do with a lot of uh, things. You know, they returned when they were older, which, you know, older animals, and I'm including humans here, have are less affected by radiation. So there are some medical factors there. Um, but also, you know, what's interesting about the women of the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone and so many of the women featured in the films I've done over the years is their relationship to fear. Uh, One of the main characters in the film, Hannah, said, radiation doesn't scare me, starvation does. She was not going to take, you know, anything from anybody. And when the government came back to evacuate her the first time, she said, shoot me and dig the grave. Otherwise, I'm staying. So one thing I've noticed about the women in the films, the adventure divas and the babushkas of Chernobyl, is their relationship to fear. We all have fear. But what you do with that energy and that fear is really critical. And there's this common thing I've noticed in the divas and the babushkas and the uh, women I've um, had the pleasure of meeting over the years is they kind of flip that energy on its head and turn it into, in many cases, you know, social change, social action, or in the case of the babushkas, survival.
0: These old babushkas actually knew that, that leaving their home would be worse for their health than the <laughs> ration they would en- radiation they would endure by staying there.
3: Across the board, the women of the zone have said, they have these wonderful aphorisms that, you know, if you leave, you die. Your soul lives in your village. If you leave your village, your soul is crushed. And this is a very deeply held belief. And, you know, whether or not I can pack it up with a medical study, you know, is is irrelevant because that is what they believe. And it is what they've staked their lives on.
0: And their experience over 30 years bears that out.
3: It does. Many of them are still with us.
0: Holly Morris, best wishes with your work. Thank you for Adventure Divas, Thank searching you. the globe for a new kind of heroin.
3: Thank you very much, Rick. Think not of failing carry
1: on When the road goes on forever Let all the tears and strife be gone And we'll walk the road together
4: All the way The land. We'll walk the road together.
0: We turn next to the legends of antiquity. Coming up, we'll enter into a wintry landscape filled with giants and trolls as we learn about the mythology of the Norsemen and later explore what the Acropolis shows us about the Greeks. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. As a person who loves history, I've always believed that you won't know where you're going and you may not know who you are if you don't know where you've come from. Today's Scandinavian societies are founded on legends and traditions about good and evil, power and intrigue, that date back well before Christianity was introduced there a thousand years ago. And yet these ancient Norse myths still resonate for modern-day Swedes and Norwegians. To introduce us to the wild and wonder-filled mythology of the Norse, We're joined now by tour guides Paul Johansen, he's from Oslo in Norway, and Håkan Franden, he's from Stockholm in Sweden. Gentlemen, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Tak, tak, tak. Paul, when you're in Norway and, you know, helping Americans better understand your culture, does the Norse mythology even matter to you as a teacher of Norwegian culture?
5: Oh, it uh, it definitely does. Mm -hmm. and um, Especially when I I talk about the Vikings, because They had such a strong belief in the Norse gods. So to be able to understand the the kind of the mentality of the Vikings, you have to know something about uh, the northern Norse
0: mythology. So if you think of very devout Christians, you could actually have similarly devout pagans on the Viking ships following the stories of their religion.
5: Yes, you can, for sure, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And also when, when we visit stave churches, for example, there are many many of uh, like the old symbols like the snakes and so on even though it's a, it's a church uh, so these are the um, the vikings
0: wooden churches that you yeah, find in the norway v- these iconic norwegian churches yeah. that go back a thousand years so you find the the viking designs and mythological themes yeah. incorporated into
5: their their new Christianity. Yeah, you do because there was a there was a transition here, right, from going from
0: Norse mythology to Christianity. Well, in Norway, doesn't that define the beginning of the modern age or the end of the ancient world, or what is that—the the transition from pagan?
4: Well,
5: I guess that's when we stopped being uh, barbarians and and and, uh, and uh, traveling around the world and uh, raping, b- raping pillaging and pillaging. <laughs> uh, we became a bit more uh, civilized. Uh, and, uh, what century would that have been? Oh, that would be back in the. Um, Eleventh uh, century, more so or th- less. a thousand yeah. years ago. A thousand years ago. You I Norwegians have come a long way in a thousand years.
0: Uh, I would say so. Yeah. In the area of yeah. civilization. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for doing that. <laughs> <You> <laughs> By <welcome>. the way, <laughs> <laughs> because I know there was a time when when you were the frightening force coming down from there the
5: north. There certainly was, and um, but I also warn my to remember sometime that uh, you have to behave.
0: If not, uh, the Viking in me might come out. Also, oh, the Viking still survives in your DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, it does. All right. Now, Hakan, from Sweden. Of course, Sweden and Norway are different cultures. Uh, there's a lot of similarities of course, but as a teacher and a guide what does Norse mythology
1: matter to you as you teach? It matters to me when I go to places like uh, old Uppsala which was the place where they used to, where the old pagan temple was, where they sacrificed to the gods in the past and where that temple was when christianity which you spoke about took over they built a church right at the place where the sacrifices had taken place to show that there was a new religion having taken over and the new religion adopted a lot from the old religion so christmas to us in sweden today there's very few people who think about jesus christ on christmas Mm -hmm. it's just as much an old pagan so what's an example of something pagan about the way you celebrate
0: Christmas? Well, For example, just the
5: Norwegian word for Christmas, for example, is Jule. Right. And uh,
1: the Swedish also. Also, Jule. the Swedish okay. and the
5: Danish, yeah. And uh, there was a midwinter um, sacrifice that the Vikings had, a blut, which they called it, where, mm-hmm. it's where you have blood from. And the midwinter sacrifice, the word for that one was Jule. And we have Yule. And Yule is Christmas. Yule, is good, so, Yule good, is, is good Yule. Is good yeah. Yule. you say. Yeah. Ha- Merry
0: Christmas. Good Yule. Yeah. yeah. Merry midwinter sacrifice. Well, uh, <laughs> Merry midwinter sacrifice. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what it is. That's, that's, what, that, it is. that's <laughs> what it is. <laughs> that's <laughs> <what> it <laughs> is. <laughs> that's <laughs> sort of a... Uh, if, if you were a, a pagan a Norwegian coming back after being frozen in a glacier for a <laughs> yeah. thousand years, you just going to what? Merry Mid- midwinter sacrifice. Well, whatever. <laughs> now, Håkon, if you lived um, over a thousand years ago in Sweden and you were a devout pagan, How would you imagine the creation of the world?
1: Do you want a long or a short version? Uh, Very short. (laughs) Very short, because Norse mythology is pretty complicated. I shall just give you a little example of how complicated it is. Night gave birth to Earth. Earth was the daughter of Night, together with Arnon. And she had Day with Delling, and she had Sun and Moon with Mundilfarn. So that means that Earth is, wait a minute here now, Earth is the half-sister of day, sun and moon, and the daughter of night, and Earth is also the first wife of Odin, king of the gods, and with Odin she had the son Thor crystal clear wouldn't you say this
0: sounds like <laughs> some sort of yeah. a soap opera <laughs> of that <American> second <laughs> world yeah. all sorts of people um, having children
1: with each other yeah. that's right yeah. it's a complicated family yeah. there were a lot of them who had children lot, within the family a lot of yes, intrigue right. a lot of drama a actually. lot of intrigue and drama so and
0: is it essentially the same in Norway and Sweden back then yeah yeah,
1: yeah. But that is just to give you an idea of how complex it is. So if I shall describe how the universe was created, I have to do it in a very, very simple way. Is that okay? Yes. Please do. First, there was ice and fire, nothing else. But then sparks from the fire hit the ice, and from the melting ice, two creatures were born. There was a giant that they call Troll in Norway. His mm-hmm. name was Ymer, and there was a cow. So now there is a cow and there is a giant. The giant starts to give birth to other giants. The giants, the Troll, are horrible beings. Mm-hmm. He gives birth from his armpits. The cow licks on the ice, and out of the ice comes a god named Bore, King Borre. We call him, that's winter today. That's the first of the gods. Okay, so now there's a giant who gives birth to giants and there's a god named Bore who begins to give birth to. Together with his wife, who is also a giant, gives birth to the gods. And all of a sudden there's a lot of gods and the most important is Odin. And he hates the giants, so he decides to kill Ymir, who gives birth to the giants. He does that and from Ymir's body he builds the whole universe. Everything you see around you is Ymir. Rocky Mountains is Ymir's bones. Earth is his flesh. The sky that you see above you is his skull. The sparks from the fire were thrown up, became the stars. And Odin had two cousins that he disliked because their father was so proud of them. So he threw them up into the sky. That was sun and moon. And he condemned them to be chased over the sky until the end of time by two wolves. And out of the earth grew a tree, Yggdrasil, the world tree. In the branches of the tree, kingdoms grew up. Almost finished now. <laughs> the giants live in jotunheim the gods live in Asgard, and man lives in Midgard. Mm-hmm. And the rest of history is a constant struggle between giants and gods, between good and evil, uh, mm-hmm. until the end of time. And end of time is coming. So Winter w- is coming.
0: That wove the community together back then, when life was so mysterious and... Filled with superstition. And it sounds like these people were eating a lot of rotten shark and
1: then hallucinating. You say superstition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you say superstition. Yeah this was a religion <laughs> that,
5: that was a what? No. it was a religion it was a religion no. yeah. okay. come on <laughs> this
1: is how the universe w- w- was
0: created yeah. now in Norway do, do you learn this in school how do, how do you know all
5: of this? Um, yes you learn it in school oh, uh, nice. I even had it as a main subject back in high school is that right? learning okay. about the gods and interpretations now Hakan uh, mentioned uh, Jotunheim when you
0: travel in Norway you come to a place called Jotunheim Yeah,
5: we call it Jotunheimen which, was, um, which is the home
0: of the giants and it would be on the top of the mountains the most dramatic place the most dramatic place oh man this is so when you know a little bit about this I think your sightseeing comes to life when you're in Sweden or in Norway this is Travel with Rick Steves we're talking about Norse mythology we're joined by Håkon Franden from the Kingdom of Sweden and we're joined by Paul Johansson from the Kingdom of Norway (laughs) Uh, and you're both still kingdoms but of course that's a whole different story constitutional monarchs now Paul if you lived a thousand years ago in Norway and were a good pagan which god would you respect the most?
5: Well, I can uh, just go back to my childhood because there was a god back then that was very important to me, and that was Thor. I
1: knew he was going
5: to say Thor. <laughs> Thor, okay. Thor with the hammer, you know, he yeah. w- he's because he's kind of like a, like a superhero, you could say. You know, he, Super god, he's the god yeah, of the he gods. He fits kind. in the same category with Superman and Spider-Man, and, uh, okay. and for me, he was a very important god. He had his hammer, Mjölnir, which uh, he would hit everything he threw it at. He rode across the sky with his chariot and his two goats. He ate the goats every evening and then collected their bones in, in their own skin and they would uh, resurrect the next day.
0: You know, I think I've seen uh, images of that at the City Hall in Oslo. Yeah, that's They've right. They've got those beautiful yeah. carved wooden painted mm-hmm. panels. That's Gorgeous. Yeah. Now, tour is a big deal, and you've even got a day named after tour, day of yeah. the week. That is... Uh, in, to- Nor- in Norwegian, Torstag. Mm-hmm. And Thursday
5: in Thursday English. in English. Yeah. And so, Torstag in Swedish. And in Swedish and as well. And then on Friday is uh, another Norse god? That's uh, Frigg. Frigg. Yeah, uh, which was the wife of Odin. So Friday, and do we even have is Wednesday in when, Wednesday comes from Odin Odin's leg Odin. Onsdag
0: Un, so in Norwegian Wednesday, Thursday and Friday come mm-hmm. from Norse gods yeah. I didn't a lot of people don't realize that this is Travel with Rick Steves we're talking with Hakan Frandin from Sweden and Paul Johansson from Norway we're talking about Norsk mythology our phone number is 877 877-333-7425 Christine's calling in from Evans in Georgia. Christine, thanks for joining us.
3: Uh, hi, Rick. Hey, Khan and Paul. I just had a question about um, how we can best include Norwegian culture and Norse mythology for our young daughters when we take our first family trip to Norway. That's coming up soon.
0: Mm-hmm. Is your family Norwegian?
3: So my great-grandparents are from, uh, I'll pronounce it wrong, but uh, Asaral and Fjotland. Fjort, um Fjortland? In Norway? <laughs> Sedestal Valley, is that? Oh, oh,
0: oh yeah, I yeah, love yeah. Sedestal. That,
5: that, yeah, that's a nice place. Yeah. Okay, so yeah.
0: Uh, Christine's going to try to introduce her kids to their Norwegian heritage. Mm-hmm. How can they incorporate some of this? Well, are you going to travel to Oslo?
3: Yes, so we'll yeah. go to Oslo, Bergen, and
4: Kristiansand, yeah. but we won't have too much time because it's on a cruise ship. Yeah.
5: So in Oslo, there are several good ways to encounter some of the Norse mythology. For example, you can go out and explore the Viking Ship Museum, which is very, very interesting. And there's also a folk museum there, not far from the Viking Ship Museum, where you can actually find an old stave church, which are an old wooden church that dates all the way back to the Viking Age. It's kind of like that Norwegian wooden Gothic. Yeah, that's true. And we also have a Viking exhibition at the historical uh,
0: museum that you can go and, and mm-hmm. check out. Beautiful Viking um, art carved into some of the uh, ships and the in oh, yeah. the, the gear with the ships. The, yeah. the Viking ship museum has a lot of wagons and belt buckles mm-hmm. and
5: a lot a lot of artifacts. these artifacts that they found on the ship. Yeah, they're still there. Yeah. Now, when Christine's in Setestal Valley, this is one of the most
0: traditional places. Mm-hmm. You have a chance to see some.
5: I think she will find a Stave Church uh, there as well, actually. Mm-hmm. And that's your best shot to seeing more of the of the Norse mythology and. Uh, things from the Viking age, uh, you could say.
0: If she wants to feed her kids something extremely traditional to eat while they're going out to (laughs) Settestal Valley, what would that be, Paul?
5: Uh, Some uh, lefse, for example. Yeah. Just this potato tortilla. (laughs) <laughs> sort of a <laughs> turkey That's a good way to taste Yeah that's uh, That's very typical Some lefse And uh, with some butter And some, some sugar on it And some cinnamon Oh yeah,
0: Have you done good. that here Christine already With your kids
3: Lefse um, No we haven't Have we some
0: haven't. lefse And then when I was a child And I visited my relatives In Norway We went to Tonsberg Which mm-hmm. is like One of the historic cities Yep and we went to an old medieval kind of fort, and we had rømmegrøt.
5: Rømmegrøt, ah, yeah. Rom, tell so, about rømmegrøt. So rømmegrøt is a sour cream porridge. Mm, and it's it's delicious. We we eat it actually with some sugar and cinnamon and some butter, and also with salty meat on
0: the side. Oh, with salty, so it can be a savory thing as well as a dessert. Oh, it, oh yeah, yeah it's, it's, it can be a full dinner. Meal. And in, then you have the flat bread. In fact, my son was just sailing with you on he the fjord, was. and he said you ate porridge all the time. Porridge every morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, Christine, be sure to introduce your kids to, say it again, Paul. Rømmegrøt. <laughs> oh. Rømmegrøt.
3: <laughs> I'll try to remember that. Uh, do, you, do you also have any recommended books of like Norwegian folktales or Norse folktales that we can uh, read before the trip?
0: You'll, I mean, get, you'll get a lot of them at every site. Yeah. When you go to Big Doy the museums, yeah. and when
5: you're in Oslo. Go to, go to a good bookstore in Oslo, and you can find... Uh, there's one book that I bought that uh, was in English, and it's, it's just called Norwegian Folktales. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what company you got it, but that's, that's a very good one. So try to search for that one on the Internet, Norwegian Folktales. Okay. It's so very okay. good. Thank
0: Christine, thanks for your
5: call.
3: Thank you so okay. much.
0: Best wishes on your trip.
3: Oh, thank you. Bye-bye,
0: Rick. Paul Johansson from Oslo and Håkan Franden from Stockholm are our guides to the myths and legends of Scandinavia right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Paul, when you think about these gods, when you spoke of Odin, it just felt like you really had an appreciation of this god. Tell us more about Odin. Yeah, so Odin,
5: he was the god of all gods. The normal people normally wouldn't worship Odin. He was more uh, a god for the kings and, uh, and the chieftains. I know a lot of Americans, they already heard about Valhalla. Yeah. Yeah, which is the the hall of the warriors where Odin sits and uh, he's the king of that hall. Is that
0: kind of like heaven if you're a Norwegian pagan? It is.
5: Kind of, yes, it is. It's where the fiercest warriors, they will come to Valhalla. Yeah, Uh, It's a huge hall. It has 540 gates. 800 men can pass through each gate at the same time. And there's a huge pig that they sacrifice um, every evening. So they have a big feast. And then the next day, the pig lives again. They re-eat this. the same pig. All yeah, these, and these so, are uh, heroes. Are they all men? I, mean, I don't hear any women. Discussed. They are all men. In Valhalla, supposedly there are only, only men. Yeah. So uh, where are the women? But there are also halls for the women. Ah, okay. Yeah, uh, like uh, Odin's wife, Frigg, she has a, a
1: hall uh, as well. Frigg, and, well, she's got a day named after her, so that's, uh, yeah, that's a good does, thing. Yeah. Tuesday also yeah, is after a god that is after Tyr, the ah, warrior Tyr, god, yeah. Tyrstag. Oh, Tyrstag. Tyrstag.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Håkon, I, I love the way you seem to be able to go back in time and, and recount history from a pagan point of view. If we're thinking about the end of the world... It is coming. Oh. Winter is coming. Tell me about this. Uh, 1,200 years ago in Sweden,
1: we're wrapped in animal skins. Yeah, but it, it has not yet come. Okay. You must understand that, first of all, we're talking about Ragnarök, the end of the world. Ragnarök. And it will come. Winter is coming. There will be a thimble winter that is going to be a three-year winter when Yggdrasil, the world tree will freeze.
0: Uh, Three years in a row without summer, with no
1: spring. Anyone who's seen Game of Thrones has heard the expression, winter is coming, that's what is coming. No spring, only winter. The world tree will freeze, and the final battle between giants and gods will take place, and it's going to be a fantastic battle. I'm not going to go into details, but it has a very un-American ending, because almost everybody dies. Almost. <laughs> it's not Almost. a
5: typical Hollywood ending. <laughs> no, no happy
1: <laughs> Almost everybody dies, but not quite all. Balder, that is our Jesus Christ, right. has died already, but he will now return from the kingdom of the dead. And when everybody's dead on the battlefield and the world is in flames, the female gods survived. Nordic mythology is a bit feministic. The female gods survived. And Baldr survives, and some more. And they sail away on a flying ship called Skidbladner <laughs> that Frey had in his pocket. And one of the survivors took it out, and they flew away. It's like at the end of the story of the Ring, the yeah, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings yeah, yeah. when the survivors fly away. Mm-hmm. Skidbladner disappears, and the world goes under, the earth sinks, and the world, the universe, Yggdrasil, Yggdrasil, the universe, is on fire. Some years later, they come back, and Earth has come up again. This is a version of Noah's Ark in Nordic mythology. And they start a new kingdom with Balder as king, and there will be a thousand-year reign with peace and mm. prosperity. Mm-hmm. And after that, nobody can tell.
0: We'll have more with Hokan and Paul on the ancient folklore and myths of Scandinavia, including reading the fabled rune stones. That's in just a minute. Plus, a guide to what you can see from 2,500 years ago at the Acropolis in Athens. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll get a Greek view of the Acropolis in just a bit. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, my tour guide friends Paul Johansson from Oslo and Håkan Frånden from Stockholm have been taking us deep into the mythology of the Norsemen. Their legends and stories about the cosmos may date back thousands of years, and only a fraction of them have survived up until today. Håkon, I was with you at the ancient birthplace of the Swedish nation. Gamlöpsala. Gamlöpsala. And we found a runestone, you remember? And you read that runestone to me. Yes. And it showed a little bit of
1: personality. Can you describe that? Well, to start with, let me say, Heimdall taught man the secret of the runes. Here on my ring, I have runes.
0: So runes are um, little slashes on a rock that was a, a primitive alphabet, so That's, people could mm-hmm. That's the alphabet.
1: Heimdall taught man the runes. Here it says Úlva, that means she wolf. Oh, look at that. And that is the name of my wife. So rune stones you find all over Sweden, okay. and especially around Stockholm. That's the rune-richest area in the world. And just
0: so people know, these are 1,000-year-old stones mm. that are stuck in the ground like a tombstone, mm. and they have a border going around the whole edge, which is hashed, and you Correct. can actually
1: read into that if you're an yeah, archaeologist. Yeah, can read them. We learned that in school. What's an example of one that we might be able to read? I remember I showed you a rune stone on which it said narve he had this runestone carved in memory of himself while he was still alive and reading a runestone like that you come back in time it tells you something about this guy he probably did not have all that many friends he didn't think that anybody was going to make a runestone in memory of him to be on the safe side he made a memory of himself while he was still alive and Mm -hmm. today a thousand years later We read about him. He's remembered. He will never be forgotten. It's a beautiful Mm -hmm. little intimate insight into the
0: personality and the insecurities of a man in Sweden a thousand years ago. It humanizes the the pagan world. These were humans, of course. That's right. (laughs) And they were made by Odin. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Norse mythology and how we can get an insight into these cultures by being tuned into it. We're joined by Håkon Franden from Sweden and Paul Johansson from Norway. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Ken's calling in from British Columbia. Ken, thanks for your call.
4: Hello, thanks for taking my call, Rick, and hello to Paul and Hakan.
1: Hello. Hey.
4: I'm uh, just partway into planning a trip through the Baltic region, and of course I'm going to hit Norway and Sweden, and I just had a question for you on the mythology, because there's kind of an Internet-famous picture that you always see of the Trolletunga, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it's uh, the Krieg Bolton. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you know any of the specific mythology around those two sites. And then I had another question a little bit afterwards about um, the actual pagan religion there.
5: Paul? Well, um, I don't know. Have you seen the movie The Troll Hunter? I haven't, but I've heard of it. You should see it. Uh, it's, a, it's a good way to research about uh, the trolls in, uh, in Norway and Sweden. The thing with the trolls is that um, they could not stand daylight, when they were out in the daylight, if the sun came up, they would turn into stone. So there's this uh, myth that uh, a lot of the mountains in, uh, in Norway, they're actually just made out of trolls who didn't get into their cave in time. And that's why you have this uh, trolltunga, which means the um, tongue of the troll. They kind of think that's, that was a troll standing. The sun came up, he had his tongue out, and it adapted that, uh, that name. That's the story behind it.
4: So very literal, then, in that sense. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It is. And then, like, I'm from British Columbia in Canada here, and we do have a Native American population up here that still practices their religion. Would you find that in Norway and Sweden? Would you find that there is a local population that still practices the mythology or the, the pagan religion there actively?
5: Well... Actually, no, you wouldn't. Very uh, rarely. Very rarely. I know there's a there's a community in Norway that still um, worships the the old Norse gods, and and they're recognized as a community. They even uh, receive some money from the state. But this is a very marginalized part of the of the population
1: in Håkon, in Sweden. Well, people who worship Norse mythology in Sweden today would be considered right wing extremists, close to fascists, who want to go back in history to the great days when we were the great vikings make sweden great again make it great again and, and we are we, <laughs> yeah. we we are not great we we we're just kind nowadays <laughs> just, don't worry is, about us at all
0: that's so untour like you're just kind <laughs> yes <laughs> ken thank you for your call thank you very much right take care well, on that note, it is just so interesting to get a little glimpse. And uh, when, you, when you think about the heritage that Norway and Sweden has, going back far longer than a lot of people recognize, mm. can we just close this conversation with, with some sense of how that contributes to who Norwegians and Swedes are today? Paul from Norway?
5: Well, I think this is interesting because, um, especially during the 19th century, during the national romantic uh, period in um, in Norway, um, a lot of, especially the creations of the trolls and uh, and these things, they had a kind of uh, a, a renaissance. Uh, the
0: resurgence of Norwegian yeah, nationalism. Yeah, when, you know.
5: when we were looking for what typical Norwegians mm-hmm. trolls were a part of that. Yeah, yeah, and and played a huge deal uh, that
0: way. Like in many countries, they would dig into their mythological past to give them legitimacy. Exactly. Håkon, thinking about the rich heritage and history that Sweden has, today, is there anything that uh, this Norse mythology contributes to the Swedish character, would you say?
1: Yes. I think that we have a very strong feeling for protecting environment, which is a part of Norse mythology, to take care of the land. To be Mm -hmm. close to the land. I'm thinking about when I grew up We had the Tomten living in our farm. Mm -hmm. We took care of the farm because otherwise we knew that he was going to be mad at us. The little mythological creature. Yes, the the Tomten is like a a gnome. uh, Who probably is the first farmer who once broke the land where your farm is. He's buried under a mound on the farm. He doesn't let go. He stays and keeps looking after the farm and you better take care of it, or otherwise he's going to be angry with you. So as uh, centuries of farmers on that same place have respected that. Centuries. Mm-hmm. And every Yule Every Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> we would put out porridge with butter to the Tomton. We knew that otherwise he would be mad. He could kill off livestock. Yeah. He and Well, you gotta the, take care of your gnomes. I I, yeah, I heard uh, of a maid who ate the porridge of the Tomton. And the next day she was found beaten almost lifeless by Tomten, who, who has magical powers. Mm-hmm. So there's a saying after that, and that is that if you eat the porridge of Tomten, you have to dance with him.
0: Oh,
5: And you don't want to dance with You don't you want to don't dance want with Tomten.
0: <laughs> On that note, I want to thank both of you very much for enlightening us to the mystical past of Norwegian and Swedish culture. Paul Johansson and Håkon Franden, Tusen Tak. 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 It started out as a citadel on a large rock outpost where the Parthenon was built as a temple to the goddess Athena in the 5th century B.C. Today, the Acropolis is one of the most familiar sites from the ancient world. It stands proudly above modern Athens to remind us of the origins of democracy in classical Greece. To help you better understand what you're seeing when you walk the grounds of the Acropolis, we're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves by Greek historian and tour guide Anastasia Gaetanou. Anastasia... Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: So, for a a person from Greece, when you look at the Acropolis, high above the city of Athens, what do you think? What does it mean to you?
2: Oh, what it means? (sighs) A lot of things. I'm definitely proud. at looking at it, it covers thousands of years of history, and it shows us the values of democracy because it's actually the pinnacle of democracy of ancient times. It's a symbol of power, of those times it's uh, a symbol a classical symbol and through the ages and it stands for not just ancient times but uh, christian times in ottoman times and everything you can think of because everyone has been up there so for us it's just a landmark of what we are
0: it weaves 2500 years of greek history together really Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways They, they say when you stand on the top of the acropolis you can see almost half of all the people in Greece because everybody's gathered around <laughs> Athens. <laughs> That's true. That's an amazing thing. It was built back in, in the Golden Age, right? The, yes. the, what is that? the 5th century BC mm-hmm. when Athens really was the center of all this wonderful culture.
2: It was the most powerful city of the known world back then. It was uh, the city that was responsible for the victory of the Greeks over the Persian Empire back then. Maybe for the Persians, that was not a big deal because the Persian empire was really vast and they didn't really care. But for the Greeks themselves, that was amazing because it was a handful of people that managed to defeat that great empire. Hmm. It was Athens that was the leading city and the one who came up with the right plan to defeat the Persians. They believed that it was because they had democracy that they managed to do that, a democracy in which the citizens identified themselves with a city, and the city could not exist without the citizens. It was the the will of man who really managed to pull this off. So Was
0: part of your ability to beat the Persians also that you had Athena as your protector, the the patron saint of Athens?
2: Athena, the patron saint of Athens, goddess, goddess, or, yeah, right, patron goddess, (laughs) goddess of wisdom, but also the protector goddess of fighters, soldiers, uh, warriors.
0: Describe the 40-foot-tall statue of Athena that stood up on the Acropolis. This must have been a wonder in the ancient days.
2: It was a wonder of the ancient days. In ancient days, it was quite common to have big statues of the gods. The temples were not that big in the classical time because it was democracy, so everything had to be in a comprehensible size for Mm -hmm. men. But the statues were representing the gods, so they had to be big, and, and they had decorated. to be awesome.
0: Lots of gold. You know?
2: And usually they would be a wooden skeleton clad or coated with ivory and gold. And that particular one had about two or more than 2,500 pounds of gold on it. It and, was really huge and shiny.
0: And this was actually had a, a reflecting pond in front of it to it, exaggerate the grandeur of it?
2: Oh, we're not sure if it was really for that reason because it was quite deep in the temple and we Mm -hmm. don't know if the sun did shine on it, but it definitely made the statue more awesome because of that basin. You could not go very close to it. And they needed the water because of the ivory. It needs humidity. Perfect. See, there's so many little
0: subtle expertise that they had in the 5th century BC to know that ivory needed water. It's really quite amazing to me. We're exploring the Acropolis in Athens on Travel with Rick Steves, and our guide is Anastasia Gaitanu. Now, we know the word Acropolis. Literally, it means the city on the hilltop, or the high city.
2: High city, that's right. And what it means. you've got
0: Acropoli all over the ancient world. Yeah. But when we say the Acropolis, it doesn't necessarily mean Athens, but I think the most famous Acropolis is the Acropolis in Athens.
2: I would say when we just refer to an Acropolis, we mean Athens. If it's another Acropolis, we we'll always say which one.
0: Now, the big news is there's the new Acropolis Museum just opened a couple of years oh, yeah. ago and in, uh, in right in the shadow of the Acropolis. Describe mm-hmm. the, what it's like for you as a Greek uh, tour guide and somebody who loves Greek history and art to have ah. this new museum to take your groups into when they're seeing the Acropolis.
2: Very difficult to describe that feeling. <laughs> but it's a world-class museum, I think, really world-class museum. And the Acropolis and the museum together, they complete each other. Mm-hmm. You, you can't really grasp the whole thing, what the Acropolis stood for, if you just see the ruins or if you just see the museum, you just have to see both. The good thing is that the one is next to the other and the museum is constructed with uh, very well simple, simple looking materials, it's mainly glass, steel and concrete. Whatever you see in there was found either on top or around or on the slopes of the Acropolis. There's nothing else in there. And it's a
0: state-of-the-art museum, beautifully designed.
2: Definitely. The last floor is dedicated to the Parthenon. And it's a bit turned so that it's in perfect alignment with the Parthenon itself. And the size of it, not the height, but the rest of it has exactly the same size as the Parthenon. And it has glass walls. So from there, you can actually see the Acropolis and the Parthenon and you can identify yourself with that. You can really understand how the building looked like, how these this wonderful reliefs and, and statues looked like, and you can have a kind of complete image in your head and understand really that splendor and, and grandeur of that that building back then. It's, it's just amazing. And
0: it is amazing to think that this state-of-the-art modern museum built right in the shadow of the Acropolis, the top floor is the size of the footprint of the Parthenon in the sort of same orientation as the Parthenon, and of course the Parthenon was surrounded by these elaborately carved, beautiful Golden Age frieze, mm-hmm. with all these great mythological stories and characters. And when you walk around the museum and you look at the frieze, you realize there's three kinds of bits of the frieze that went all the way around the Parthenon. There are bits of the frieze that are gone, there are mm-hmm. bits of the frieze that are in London, mm. and there are bits of the frieze that are there <laughs> in Athens. It's in almost in, as in if,
2: London and in some other museums of the world. It's almost
0: yeah. as if this museum was built to make a comment that the rest of those bits of the frieze have a spot right here.
2: Well, it's definitely one of the reasons why it was built. Definitely, because one of the arguments so far of not returning these pieces was that we did not have a proper museum to house them. So that, that argument is interesting, is and I think over. that's a
0: good case. You can make a case that if there's a treasure that's for all of West, all of humanity and the home of this treasure can't really put it in a safe place, it's better in a faraway city that mm-hmm. can take good care of it and more people can enjoy it. And that was the case London made, to have the, yes. the Elgin marbles, part of the Parthenon, mm-hmm. in London in the British Museum. The Greeks seemed to have taken that challenge when England said, well, you don't have a, a legitimate, safe, decent place for these treasures Mm -hmm. and what did you do
2: well we built a museum
0: and now what is what's the status (laughs) of the discussion now
2: well the status of the discussion well you know we don't call them the elgin marbles because we don't want to honor the thief if I may say so we El-Elgin, call them the Parthenon marbles. Elgin or
0: the thief. Was the, um. the British, uh, was he a general <laughs> or something that took them home or how did he?
2: Uh, he was the consul of England uh-huh. in Constantinople, that's today's Istanbul, when it was still the Ottoman Empire.
0: Oh, and, and Athens was part of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, and Athens
2: was a part of the Ottoman Empire. So he managed to get a permit of first making sketches of the Acropolis, but then one year later, they broke the um, war between France and England. Of course, neither in France nor in England, but in Egypt back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seemed as though England would win, did not, but it seemed that way. So he got a second permit that allowed him to remove pieces of the Acropolis, but were already on the ground Mm -hmm. and did not really have any carvings on them. He interpreted that a bit differently. And he was not just active just on the Acropolis. He was all over Greece, something that many people don't know. He He tried, for example, for a very long time, to get the Lion Gate of Mycenae, but that is very heavy and right. the uh, the ropes of his crane kept breaking. So oh, that so, so that didn't um, end
0: up in the British Museum. Anyways, um, we've got a little bit of the Parthenon still in the ongoing story. Mm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Acropolis, the magnificent Acropolis, the crown of Athens and the new museum, the state-of-the-art Acropolis Museum right in its shadow. We're talking with Anastasia Gaitanou, Anastasia, one of my favorite experiences in all of Europe is to be on the top of the Acropolis just when the whistles are being blown by the guards and it's time for everybody to go down (laughs) because it's crowded and it's hot. But at the end of the day, you can hide out in a little corner and be the very last tourist off of the Acropolis. If you're the last person on the Acropolis and you're standing in the middle and you're looking around, just finish this discussion by describing what you're going to see of these great temples and buildings from the Golden Age of Greece.
2: Well, what do you see? You definitely see the Parthenon which was the uh, temple and house of Athena itself, the protector goddess of the city. And you can see the so-called Erechthion. There was a building that was built a bit later, after the Parthenon, during the war between Athens and Sparta. So it stands for a completely different thing. It's a very elaborate, very beautiful building. The most famous part of it are the so-called Caryatids, which are statues of women that support the ceiling instead of columns. What you see on the Acropolis, of course, are the copies. The originals are in the museum, apart from one, which is in London, but all the rest is in the Acropolis Museum. And then you see also the so-called Propylaia, which is just simply the entrance gate of the Acropolis. And if you turn around from that, you see the Greek flag, then on top of one of the medieval bastions of the Acropolis. And you should go to the flag, definitely, because that's where you have the best view.
0: And you stand on that very tip-top of the Acropolis underneath that beautiful Greek flag, the blue and white flapping in the wind, and you look out and you see the city of Athens stretching as far as the eye can see, four yeah. million people. hmm it's, it's a beautiful place. Anybody going to Greece has to go to that spot.
2: Absolutely.
0: Anastasia Gaitanu, thank you so much for taking us to the Acropolis and helping us a little bit better understand the triumph of classical Greece.
2: Well, thank you very much for giving me the chance.
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Isaac Kaplan-Wilner and Sarah McCormick. Rick produces updated walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find the latest ones in Rick's Audio Europe travel app. Look for it at ricksteves.com radio.
5: Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece,
0: and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.